It was lunchtime at the orphanage. The kids were lined up as usual for their long-awaited meal. And as they proceeded down the line, there was, they came to this bowl of beautiful, juicy apples. A cost-counting and conscientious nun had posted a sign over the apple saying, take just one, God is watching. A little further down the line, uh, the kids came to a plate of delicious chocolate chip cookies. The same sign had been written overhead by the same nun, except that one cheeky little devil had crossed out the original text, replacing it with, take as many cookies as you like, God is watching the apples. <laughs> okay, that's my best joke, I have no sports jokes. But it does have bearing on our story. Good morning, everyone. I'm, I'm Lois Francis, and with my husband John and family, we've called Forest View home for the last 13 years, which has been a very great blessing to us. Cyril's away taking a well-earned break. I've loved this series we've been in on epic fails. Um, Justice, who's somebody I hadn't really heard much about, to be honest. Samson, that strange guy. And Judas, a tragic figure. I gotta admit, in a weird way, I identify more with the failures of scripture than I do the heroes. It, perhaps it's just because I see a little of myself in each of them. And perhaps in some ways, looking at the so-called losers of scripture, makes me understand in a far deeper way the riches and the depth of the mercy of God for me. So today in our final story of the series, I want you to consider a woman who was trapped not only by her personal choices, but by a religious culture that thought her unsalvageable. And I want us to look with fresh eyes at the rebel Jesus Christ, our rebel savior, who loves upsetting religious apple carts. So if you have your Bibles handy, you can turn in it to John 4, famous text, or you can just follow along with the screen above. And let's read the story. Jesus is on the move here. So the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Okay, this whole thing of, well, first of all, as Jesus is on the move, the reason why he had left possibly was because he was now on the Philistines' radar as a person of interest. And understanding the times that the father had set, I think, he left Judea, and he was taking the most direct route back to Galilee, which was through Samaria. Now, this was kind of a dangerous move to make. Um, Jews and Samaritans were decidedly unfriendly towards each other. You could get stoned as a Jew just by entering Samaritan territory. So e even the disciples going to get food in Samaria, kosher food, hopefully, was a rather risky thing. And they had left Jesus, a very tired Jesus, sitting by the well. It's about noon if you go by the Jewish clock, which is actually the heat of the day. And it would not be, of course, the right time of day for a woman or anyone to go collecting 
water. This woman comes alone, and Jesus politely asks her for a drink. And her response is rather abrupt. Look, I'm a Jew. You're a Samaritan. Why are you even talking to me? Well, why indeed? And I just want to give you a very quick overview of a bit of the history here. Samaritans were the ten lost tribes of Israel. Um, they, these were the, the tribes that had been the, north, the northern kingdom that had been conquered by the Assyrians like 4 BC. And as was the MO of conquering nations, they would remove the wealthier, the more educated peoples, because these are the people who would mount an insurrection, possibly. And they would instead repopulate the area with, with foreign pagans. And of course, these people would bring with them their culture, their own worship practices. And there would be intermarriage, syncretism, a weaving together of religious practices. If you were a devout Jew, this was horrifying. The Jews, the Jews of the day, especially the Pharisees, and this is kind of the group that emerged because of this, they, they felt that this whole thing of the ten tribes being conquered was a direct judgment of God because people had not observed Mosaic law. They had been careless with the word of God. So this is kind of where Pharisees were born. Now, I know that's a really grim picture, but I want us to step into their shoes just for a minute. This was a sincere group of scholars. They were determined to keep the purity of the faith, the purity of the race, their sense of an identity as God's chosen people. All good, except that you know what happens when people have power, and a lot of it over a long period of time. They had become the spiritual ruling class. So they, in their zeal to observe Mosaic law, they had just gone way over the top. They had instituted rules based on their study of scripture, which actually over time had been considered to, had come to be viewed as on the same par as the Torah itself, the Jewish scriptures. So immense power. And these rules, let me tell you, were complex and demanding. If you saw a snake crawling towards you, a venomous viper, but it was time to pray, you stopped. <laughs> you didn't run away from the snake. If you had your foot in the stirrup to mount your donkey, and it was time to do something else, you stopped with your foot in the donkey's, or in the, you know, in the stirrup. So when you have a religion that is based on so many rules, it becomes very easy to identify who's in and who's out spiritually. So if you were a Samaritan, you were definitely an outcast. You were the half-breed Israelite, despised because of your mixed race, your mixed ideas religiously, the two groups couldn't understand each other, and it didn't help that in something like 128 BC, the Maccabees, who were a very zealous group of Jews, had completely destroyed the temple on, the, on Mount Gerizim, which is like, sort of like the holy mountain for Samaritans. Nobody had forgotten that little incident. Okay, one thing to be a Samaritan. Second, you're a Samaritan woman. Uh, you were, if you were, according to the religious writings of some of the elders, Jewish elders, to be a Samaritan woman was to be unclean from the cradle. And to be fair, in Middle Eastern culture at the time, even to talk to a woman in public, any woman, even your own wife in public, would not be done. So talking to a Samaritan woman, years of cultural conditioning, the traditions of the religious elders, everything forbade this. They're cut off. 
This exchange that we're about to look at should never have happened, and everyone would have known why. But the rebel, Jesus, initiates the conversation, and he, I guess, creates kind of a crisis. Maybe that's why the Holy Spirit engineered things so that it was a private conversation. Let's keep going, and let's look at verses 10 to 12. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and flocks and herds? Okay, Jesus' opening gambit here seems perfectly pitched to get her curiosity going. And it sets the stage to go to a completely different level. I mean, what do these two individuals have in common? Water. <laughs> We're both human. We both need water. That's a pretty basic foundation for interaction with somebody. But instead of talking about water just from a cistern, Jesus starts talking about a different kind of water. The metaphor begins to subtly shift, and he starts to talk about this bubbling, fresh, clean, pure, mountain stream kind of water that gives you life, living water. She likes the sound of that. And she takes what he says at face value, but it's kind of a little bit like, okay, prove it. Where can you get this water? Are you really greater than our father Jacob? Sincere question. It is a challenge to Jesus, though. Can you promise me something better? But you do notice that Jesus has now become Sir. If we keep going in the story, in verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered the woman, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Hmm. Water that's just not about satisfying the thirst, your heat, the heat of the day, but something that's going to quench your thirst always. Not just life-giving water, but life eternal. I, I wonder if the thought of life eternal was something that struck a deep chord inside her, triggered some more questions from her. Or maybe it was just the idea of no more midday trips to the well. But if we continue in the story, the woman is so drawn in by this. She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw the water. Familiar story. We know this. But I want to stop here for a second because I think all along Jesus was trying to get her to this point. He starts by asking the woman for water. He's been waiting for her to ask him for water. But at the same time, I'm thinking as I read the story, this is apples and oranges. Like, she's talking about the wet stuff, <laughs> the water, and Jesus is talking about something different. So how, how is this helping? And I want to share a little story. A long time ago, a long time ago, I was at a crossroads point in my life. I was in my my early 20s, I had been with a wonderful missions organization for about two and a half years, and I 
was trying to just make a decision. Should I leave the organization that I loved and, and go back to university? I felt completely torn. I love the vision of the ministry. I love the people I worked with. But I also had this sense that if I left this missions organization, I would never be going back. I just couldn't bear it. So I did what a good Pharisee, good person does. I decided that I would get this decision right. I would hear from God. So I spent a lot of my non-waking hours begging God to show me what to do. I asked him to show me if there was sin in my life that was hindering my ability to hear. I told him I laid the decision down. Whatever he said, I would do. I suspect that there was a little bit of, and if I make a wrong decision, it's not my fault. <laughs> but, you know, we'll just skip over that. After about three days of intensive seeking, this is what I heard. Lois, whatever you do, I will bless you. What? No, no, that's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted you to tell me what to do. This could not be right in my theology of the time. I was troubled. I was shocked. It took me a very long time to realize what that answer was about. I had been taught, and it had been always modeled to me, that God loves good girls. And the importance of being good and to find the will of God was the most important thing in life. And it kind of stopped there. So I was more comfortable with God as lawmaker, rule giver, general, do this, do that. This God, this God blew some of my circuits. Imagine those of you who have little kids now. If one of your children ran up to you and they said, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry to bother you. I have a really big request. I'd I know I need to find exactly the right words so that you'll hear me. And, and when I ask you, I promise I won't bother you ever again until I have another crisis. It would be inexpressibly painful. And basically, that's what I was doing to the Father. The answer to my question was for him to show me more about himself and more of who I am in him. It was father-daughter. I think in this story, this woman is asking for a change. Is she asking the right question? Eh, I don't know. Is she asking the right person? Absolutely. She was sincerely opening the door. I don't know, this sounds to me like another scripture. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door. She's opening a door. To be honest, I think most times in prayer we get hung up on words. I think most times we're actually asking the wrong thing, maybe, because we don't really understand what we need. I don't know about you, I don't remember my first prayers, but I suspect they were rote prayers. It has taken me years to, to learn to treat my God as my father. But I wanted to show a little example because I've been thinking about kids here. But you remember the expression, faith as small as a mustard seed, that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved, and it will be cast into the depths of the sea. All right, so I just thought today I would bring you pictures worth a thousand words. Got it? Faith. 
a small as mustard seed. No? Oh, okay, now you see it. Faith as small as a mustard seed. Mustard seed faith. This expression had already become proverbial in the time of Jesus. Um, you know, it isn't really a tree. It's actually a garden herb. But the funny thing about a mustard seed is that it is an extremely small seed, but it becomes one of the largest of all the herbs. So in other words, its growth, once it, re once it begins to grow, its size becomes completely disproportionate to its original size. And so I think the main point of that parable is that under small beginnings, with small beginnings, the kingdom of God in Christ is going to expand disproportionately to what we think we're putting in. So this woman was asking a question that opened a door. Mustard seed. It wasn't anything she worked up in herself or that she could measure within herself before she asked the question. She just saw the next thing. She saw what she wanted. She was hungry, thirsty, and she asked for it. That doesn't mean, to be honest, that her theology was all that good. At this point, no. She wasn't fully convinced of anything regarding Jesus beyond that he was a Jewish man, a very nice one. But the truth was standing in front of her, and she couldn't, she couldn't turn away. So let's say on a scale, she had gone from zero to one. Zero being her expectation of what Christ could do for her. But I wouldn't say she's at a zero in terms of her spiritual longing, just because of the way Jesus talks to her. I believe the mystery of salvation was starting to unfold right here. So in the next phase of the conversation, things take a quantum leap. So I think we're looking at, oh yeah, verse 16, Jesus tells her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Put yourself in the woman's place right now. I'd be like, oh man, what was I thinking? Thinking that I could have a genuine conversation with someone. This amazing conversation is going where all the conversations that I ever have with people go, which is that I am a mess, I'm rejected, and written off yet again. I wonder if initially, I mean, obviously, she's coming to the well at the wrong time of day. She's avoiding people, possibly. And here she's taking a chance. Maybe initially she's thinking, here we go again. But I think she can't help but think that there's something, Jesus is telling her the truth. She knows it, but he's not trying to shame her with it. He's not rubbing her face in her failures. It's just that we need to be on the same page here. We need to be on the, same, the page of truth. She knows. She knows what's wrong in her life. And I don't know. I think sometimes we're kind of afraid to talk about sin in churches. It's kind of a bad word. I don't think God has that problem because of the way he talks about sin. He hates it because it's based on lies. I don't know about you. Have you ever noticed that 
in any area where you're covering up with God, where you've closed the door, that it is so much easier to buy more readily into Satan's narrative in other areas of your life. So when we're covering up stuff, shame finds its place in us. Our sense of love and the goodness of God fades. Hope withers. We feel like we can't talk to people. We have to make sure the conversation stays away from that. And I feel like in the darkness, that's where our failures become like the grenades that the enemy uses to lob at us. And it's usually just when you're starting to think, I'm going to do the right thing. I want, to, I want to change here. And then he throws the grenade at you. What? You? Etc. These thoughts war against our souls. But that's not how, that is not how Jesus handles sin in our lives. That's not it. He's not like that. Truth, yes, the truth, love, and mercy are what are the ways that Jesus interacts with us. Truth, love, and mercy always for open hearts, for hungry hearts, even when it looks like he's saying the bad news to us. And the fact is, he, he started this conversation, and by this word of knowledge, it's clear that he knew already. He knew, and he still started the conversation. Clearly, he had come at this point in time to meet her and set her free. And I think she grasped it in increasing measure because she doesn't walk away. Let's, let's carry on in the story here. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Wow. I love this. Did Jesus ever answer the Pharisees like this? He answers this question this way to this woman because with all the knowledge that she has, she's asking a sincere question. And what he tells her, of course, this is some of the most profound ideas about worship that I found in the New Testament. Biblical worship, the worship that pleases God, always at its core, its very core, is about relationship. It's between you and Father, a people, the people of God and our God. It's never about the right place, the right building. It's not about just laws and rules, although there are, there are truths, there are laws and rules. But the word was always intended to lead us to the living word. That's why Jesus is called the living word. It's Christ. So true worship is about a God who makes himself known. And that's the history of the Jewish people. A God that we know, 
one we know that we can worship both in spirit and in truth, God with us, Messiah. I want Messiah because he's going to tell me everything I need to know, she says. You found him. So we're going to sort of wrap some of this up a little quickly. Although it's a great story, you can continue reading. What happens is the disciples arrive, they're dumbfounded, but hey, they play it smart this time and they don't say too much because they've learned enough about being with the master that he knows what he's doing. She is, the conversation continues. We don't know what that was all about, but it's between this woman and her God. Filled with joy, she puts down her jar, she boots it out of there, she's back to Sychar, and she's giving what I think is kind of a lame testimony. <laughs> like, I, I kind of think this is not one, a testimony anybody's going to write up in the, in the books about how to do evangelism. Hey, everybody, this guy's told me all the rotten things I've done in my life. <laughs> Yay! You know, could this be the Christ? Jesus, in the meanwhile, his disciples are saying to him, you know, Jesus, eat something. It's probably been a long time since he's eaten. He's not eating. You know what I think he's doing? He is praying for that woman. He is interceding for her as she is doing the most crazy, radical steps. She is laying it all out. What a heart. She's saying, you give me the truth, I'm going the whole, I'm totally in. I'm going to tell everybody I know. And you know, I think she could do that because what Jesus had said to her had given her a new identity. She was no longer defined as worthless, as someone unsalvageable, the loose woman who somehow had messed up all of her interpersonal relationships. That's not her anymore. So she could give that kind of testimony. Just one woman, a write-off in the eyes of many. Jesus was busy, busy person. Why would the Spirit of God divert him like this? Just one woman, but the other player in this scene is Christ, the Messiah, the salvaging expert who welcomes and loves and includes anybody who wants to be found. And through her young, young faith, an entire community is impacted. Jesus spends two days with the people of Sychar, and they end up saying, okay, we were very intrigued by what this woman said, but now that we have met you, now we believe because of what you say to us. Richard Rohr calls uh, Jesus the scandal of God. I love it. Jesus is scandalous. But that's our Father. Extreme, total love and mercy. Someone who goes absolutely all the way to find hungry hearts. So here we are this morning, Forest View. It's 21st century suburbia. We are going to be leaving this building very soon to re-engage all of us in our own complex set of relationships and in our homes, with our families, at work, wherever it carries us. How, what do we take from this story that's so well known to us? First of all, I think it's that the only epic fails are the people who really don't want to be found, 
even when they hear the truth. They, they don't really want anything to do with who Jesus is, and they resist his invitation right to the end. And I think that Jesus is extending the invitation, as we saw with Judas, right until the end. But that's how Jesus is with people who don't know him. He's open. He's open. So all of us, wherever you are this morning, I don't know if you would call yourself a believer or if you're still thinking about it, we all of us are just one step away. And all the people that we meet every day in the grocery store, wherever it is, they're just one step away. And so Jesus in us, if we're believers, wants to engage with them with the same heart, patience, mercy that he shows us all the time. And I just want to say that that can make you feel crushed. You think, I can't do that. But especially you can't do it unless you're actively living this morning in the knowledge of how deeply loved you are. I just want you to think about that. You are deeply, deeply loved. So we need every day to wake up being as kind to ourselves about the love of God for us, in, even though we know, like this woman, all the things that aren't right in our lives. We must embrace the love of God because you can't love other people well if you don't love yourself well. And to not love yourself well is to misunderstand your identity as a beloved son, a beloved daughter. We sing a lot of Bethel music around here at church in California, and I love what Bill Johnson, the pastor, says there. He says, we cannot afford to entertain thoughts about ourselves that God doesn't think about us. This isn't just a nice idea. This is true. We must daily align our minds to his reflecting on what we know from Scripture is true about him. That will steady us when the grenades come. Second thing. Stay hungry. Stay thirsty. It's not always pretty. It's uncomfortable. Our son, Peter, has moved home with us after five years away at school and working. He's, he's going pretty okay. He did warn us, though, in a phone call before he arrived home. He said, Mom, Dad, I eat a lot. My housemates call me the scavenger. And it's true, all the leftovers I used to sort of plan on as having in the fridge that I could cobble together a last-minute dinner are gone. And um, yeah, the food budget is growing. But you know what? I love feeding Peter. Okay, it's a mother thing. He raves about my cooking. I don't even like cooking. So he's smart. Um, but you know, the truth is, hunger and thirst are the normal, healthy state of a biological organism, especially in their late teens and 20s, right? It's the same spiritually. You want to be a little concerned if you feel no hunger or no thirst for God, for more of God. If you're satisfied, settled, ah, I know this routine, I know the patois, no, no, no. Um, so how do you choose hunger? You can. One practice I, I have found, first of all, is being with you every week. You know, I don't know all of you. We don't all know each other. It is the most amazing gift that I get to be with you every week. And I'm not making that up. 
I, the body of Christ is a huge gift to me. You encourage me just because you're here, and I know you want to be here. You wouldn't be here. Lots of other places you could be. The thing, besides just having some time in the morning that I can grab, I have started more and more lately, because morning prayer time just never seems enough to me, is just to do those little one-off prayers, those little conversations with God, things that help me stay grounded throughout the day. I'm driving into work. Father, you're good. Thanks for loving me. As I'm going into my classroom, God, bless these guys. Open their hearts to your truth and your love. Give me the right words. If I'm meeting a difficult person, say, Jesus, stand between them and I. Give me your love for that person. It's just they're short. Yours are going to be your own, tailored to your situation. What this does for me is it grounds my heart. It positions me to let his living water, his spirit, his truth permeate the situation. And it's a way of practicing humility and submission. Lasting, let's all live more risky. Let's plant mustard seeds this week. Let's get over ourselves and our fear of getting it wrong and of looking stupid. That's my epic fail, the things I haven't done because I've been afraid to look stupid. What a waste. The things we're called to do don't have to be big things. Let's just do something, anything, the next thing. Engage fully with the person and situation in front of us, inviting in our minds. We don't have to say anything out loud, freak them out, no. Let's just invite the love of God. So, this morning... We're invited to this table, this feast of Jesus, the radical, the lover of our souls, who wants to love every person outside that door, in, the, in this house and outside that door with his love. It was all in. Jesus loves us, when we're, loves us whenever, and he's inviting us all in. Let's pray. God, our Father, we ask this morning, increase our capacity to be hungry and to be thirsty for living water, for the truth. Lord, our minds are playgrounds for so much garbage. This morning, Lord Jesus, Spirit of truth, we just invite you to put your finger on the lies that we believe that have kept us back from being all in with you. Lord, our failures are to not receive your love. This table reminds us that when we screw up, you are there. You are one step away from us. So Holy Spirit, would you come as we feast together? May we receive afresh the absolute knowledge of the depth of your love that did not stop with words that flowed into actions that took you to lay down everything for us. We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.